0: I really believe that I make decisions around work and others, around what I want to talk about in the in the Friday night dinner table.
1: Hi, you're listening to Looks Like Work. I'm your host, Chedra Kleinler, and yeah, it's the least pronounceable name you've ever heard, but you'll get used to it. I'm a serial entrepreneur who's obsessed with curiosity, creativity, and grit, and that's just to get started. I really can't get enough of learning more about people's career choices. What fulfills them? How do they deal with burnout, with heartbreak? How do they protect their boundaries? And is it all even working? Those are questions that keep me up at night and I hope to explore here. On this podcast, we'll have deep conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, people juggling a few jobs, sometimes even a few industries, sharing what looks like work for them. With that, on to the episode. I really hope you'll enjoy it. Hi, Ianeev. How are you?
0: I am great. Thanks for having me.
1: I am so excited to have you here. So before we dive in, let me just quickly introduce you. So Yaniv Rivlin is the founding CEO of Bird in Israel and the best-selling author of Life as a Startup. Also a super kind and super interesting person that I had the luck to bump into quite a few years ago already. I think that was when you were still at Reality at Schusterman, right?
0: Yeah. Seems like ages ago, but yes.
1: Yeah, totally. Okay, so before we start really talking, I'll ask you our recurring question. What looks like work for you, Yaniv?
0: So what looks like work for me is pleasure as well. So it's like work and pleasure combined with making the world a better place and always invigorating our ourself always being in a constant mode of invigoration because I think that's the most important thing and not being in a comfort zone for too long.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting and important addition. We can dive into that deeper later. I love what you said because reading your book over the holidays just now, there are so many different stations, but as someone who also had like a very kind of varied career path, I could definitely see the thread or the common theme throughout all of it. And I feel like you could really see how with every decision and choice you make in your career, in your life, you really took into consideration those things. So how does it contribute to the world? In some cases, it was like very, very clear because those like were more like nonprofits and mission-driven jobs. And in other places, it was really interesting to see how you kind of infused them with that. So let's start from that. Like, where do you think it came from? That passion to really do stuff that you feel is meaningful and that can actually contribute to the world.
0: I think in the end, we all have. An option, right? If, if we look at it in that way, we can do things that contribute to the world or we can do things that don't contribute to the world. Luckily, I think there's enough things in this world that do contribute to the world. And I, and I think there's a great way to combine things now that we also didn't have a, an option to do a while ago. And I think in the end, I really believe that we need to, you know, we need to feel that passion. And I think it's very much individual. But for me, I do feel a passion when I make a difference or when I make a change. And I and I felt that way earlier in my in my life and and my career and and since then I I haven't looked back because I think that, you know, we have that option. And there's no reason or necessity to compromise. So, you know, I I like to talk for like a win 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 and there's no reason why we shouldn't create that for ourselves. And I feel also that if we don't do that, then in the end, I personally won't be passionate to talk about what I do. And I really believe that, that I make decisions around work and others around what I want to talk about in the in the Friday night dinner table. And I don't think that I would have a passion to talk about something that won't bring value to the world. so. It's a non-brainer when you think about it.
1: I love that. And I like that, you know, a lot of times when we think about stuff that is helpful to the world, what comes to mind is a very specific set of professions or industries. But what I really enjoyed about your book is reading about the kid that you were. And first of all, I identified with a lot of things. We'll talk about like growing up between cultures and growing up bilingual in a second. Connecting to what you just said, I like that you were also throughout the book and you see it from like a very young age, you were also like super driven and you enjoyed the stuff that we don't expect necessarily when it comes to impact, like you enjoy and you're good at selling in business. And I think those are things that are so important to bring into impact and into Doing good, but first, let's really talk about growing up. You had an interesting kind of upbringing in between Canada, the States, the North, and Israel. Can you talk a little about that?
0: Yeah, so I, I actually think that to your point, I actually wasn't that driven way, or like I, I think way early is. Uh, it depends how you look at it, but I, I always like I was driven towards something, but I didn't have that much success when I was younger. And in the end, continuing to, to drive forward brought with it a lot of, a lot of interesting things. I think the fact that I was multilingual, on one hand, it helped me a lot because knowing English is always a, is a great trait, but when I left, we left, I was born in the Kibbutz and then at the age of five, we left for a year to Canada, where my mother's from, and then to the Golan Heights. I knew fluent Hebrew when I left, and then when I came back, I couldn't remember a word of Hebrew, Um, and I was fluent in English, which created opportunities, but also a lot of challenges because I never really learned a language, and because I never really learned how to learn a language, I couldn't really learn later on languages. It was a bit of a barrier from that perspective, but also... You know, the, the fact that I knew English gave me a lot of, or I would say a, a big advantage, you know, moving forward compared to others on that front. And also to your point, I think, which is something that throughout life, I think has been a very important trait for me. And, and I advise when I mentor people, I'd, I'd say like, get that global perspective wherever you are. So get that time abroad, immerse yourself because once you move and see, I, you know, there's a, a mentor of mine from Harvard when I studied, Ron Heifetz, that basically coined the term take a step from the dance floor to the balcony. And when you take a step from the dance floor to the balcony, which means even if you move from Israel somewhere else and you look back at Israel, you'll see things that you haven't seen, both about yourself and about where you are from. And I think it's something that is really, I, I recommend people to do. Because I also think that then it makes you really understand different cultures and different things that will work here versus work there. And I think it has a lot of... Also, one of the things, or I think Forbes said that it was the number one trait of uh, managers or leaders in the the new world is empathy. And I think that, first of all, I'm a true believer in empathy, but I think that, that you can only get empathy when you actually come close or see other culture places and everything around that
1: i really identify with that i think also to your point about empathy once you you understand more than one type of person then it's easier for you to to like kind of put yourself inside other people's shoes even if they're not like the two or three or five types of people that you've encountered in your life it you just it opens up your brain to saying oh Not everyone has the same circumstances. Not everyone cares about the same things. Not everyone has the same privileges, right? Not everyone thinks the same or has the same context. I really identify with that, like also growing up between Israel and and New York and kind of starting to speak both languages at the same time losing one of them, coming back. And and then also like you kind of speak two of the languages, but one of them is like more of your home language. One of them is your outside language. I think it kind of, it really changes your experience of the world. Totally does. I really have like this notion or this like idea that when you grow up this way, you are also able to kind of zoom out and kind of analyze situations a little bit out-of-body experience maybe and say oh this is interesting this is how they experience it how do I fit in how can I help or what is my place inside all of this
0: yeah I think it just gives you uh, a real playground to understand as well like so I fit in here there but I could also fit in in a different spot if you give me the opportunity and I think in today's world, it connects a lot to multidisciplinary and, and the fact that we shouldn't look at our results in one avenue. And I think that uh, that a true leader, a true manager, a good manager is is someone that that has that multidisciplinary experience. Now, that multidisciplinary experience can come from different trades. It can come from different experiences. It can come from different professions. It can come from different cultures. But I think it's super important for people to experience and to explore. And I've never heard of anyone that has experienced or explored and looks back at it and said it was a wrong decision.
1: Yeah. I think I really appreciated the duality in your experience. So I think this is like a little bit of a deep cut, but. On the one side, you had this experience of kind of being new to Israel and having to relearn the language and growing up with parents who were not from here. On the other hand, you have like a very deep and long connection. Your family has been here for ages and ages. I had exactly (laughs) the same experience. My family has been here for like four centuries, but also my mom is American and it was all this. And also another thing that I loved and I think really was interesting to see how it translated into your career and choices in life was kind of a duality between being diagnosed as gifted and I think, and I might be projecting into you, so tell me if I'm wrong, but kind of having the confidence that comes with it that you do know that you're smart, you do know that you have what you have. But on the other hand, Also experiencing failing at exams and like having like a rougher time in different, you know, academic experiences as a young kid. Do you think that had any impact on the way you see success, failure? What do you measure in life and in work?
0: For sure. So I'll take a step back. Yeah, I, I was gifted, but actually that gifted, I felt I didn't deserve it. Basically, I didn't pass the actual exam that every Israeli goes through in, in third grade in order to determine whether they're gifted or not. Which is a theme for me later on in life because I really am not good in in exams. I I, um, I got five hundred and forty-two on my psychometric exam, which is incredibly low. I, I didn't do well in my GRE. I, I'm as you can hear, I'm a English native speaker, but I didn't pass the TOEFL exam. So a lot of those, it's not my strong suits. I also have ADHD and this graphic, So I didn't pass that in third grade, but I did do uh, an exam a couple of years earlier, more about one on one, like verbal with a psychologist, where my IQ was identified as being high relative to the population. When I failed the exam, and my mother then was high up in the, in the gifted school, and then she got me in through that. So I actually felt a little inferior from that perspective. But I did, you know, look back at that exam where I actually did get a higher score on the IQ. And I think it's, it's something that later on also uh, helped me up. I do think that it's interesting if you look at like career and life, but I, I do think that because because I didn't have one career path. You know, so a lot of people, when they grow up, you know, they know that they want to be a doctor, they want to be this, they want to be that. So there's a very clear career path. For me, that wasn't you know that wasn't the case. It was a lot of like amorphic things that I wanted to do. I wanted to you know be the foreign minister. I wanted to you know be the Israeli ambassador. A couple of things that there's no clear path to to do it, which made me always strive to create that path for myself. In the beginning, I didn't have a lot of self confidence on the route because also a lot of things that are were then. I think now it's going through a change, and I'm really happy about it. But I think there were a lot of things that used to be defined as what is success as, as in it's the metrics of exams, this or that, which um, but I think there's much more appreciation now for soft skills and other things that are emotional intelligence, which is, which is not less important than I would probably argue and even more important, but that's not, not necessarily really quantified. And um, so it can make you feel Inferior as you grow. For me, I think I really only got out of that psyche when I got accepted to Harvard, and even even when I got accepted to Harvard, that didn't change. And then I thought it was like an admissions mistake. But like only later on, I think when I like graduated and going through that two years and understanding, yeah, I, like this is my spot, and no one is, you know, I'm worthy of being here, if, if you may say. Then I I actually got a little bit of a boost of of confidence. Kind of in hindsight, it was live, I got it, but then in hindsight, of course, and also getting that boost before in a lot of separate things also helped me get to where I was and to where I did. And we talked about like, you know, whether it was selling, which I think is probably the most important quality, hands down, that everyone should go through and try it out. I think it's something that you know some people think It has to be something classic, but it shouldn't. Like I got my experience selling Dead Sea Cosmetic in a mall after, you know, a classic Israeli thing after the military. That's what gave me the confidence around selling that I'm a good salesperson. Being a a salesperson is, I think is, is incredibly important, but also because once you're a good salesperson, you know how to sell yourself. It starts with selling yourself. And that's not a, it's not a bad thing. It's actually something that I believe that each person should go through a, a workshop first about selling themselves. selves. Because once you have confidence in that, and you understand that a lot of the experiences that you have done are not what everybody has done, and that you have unique selling points, then first of all, it creates confidence, but also it lets you get places that you couldn't have before because you, you didn't know what to highlight.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree. And I'm not a natural salesperson at all. I always used to say, because I've been in marketing for years and I was like, no, marketing is not sales. It's a completely different thing. And I think only when I started Emerge, my startup, you know, you learn that everything is sales because you're selling the vision to the first co founders that you want to join you. You're selling it, of course, to investors. Of course, you're selling to, Clients and a lot about it is exactly like you said. It's not even the vision of the company. It's first of all, selling yourself so they can believe in you. Who are you? Like, why should they trust you? Why should they join you to this like rocky, very, very rocky road? And it's such an important skill to have in our day and age to know what are the things that are inherent to us that we might take For granted, we might even look at them as some shortcomings or as experiences that are not amazing, you know, speak about failing in exams or stuff like that, but actually make us who we are. And as you said, they help us develop our empathy, our leadership, or each to their own for every person. It could be a different thing. And I love that you're like... Kind of major experience that helped you form that is like this classic Israeli experience. What's like a better sales boot camp than, you know, pushing Dead Sea (laughs) products to
0: people? And and I also think that it, it combines what we talked about earlier in the show, which means that experiences that we go through, we tend to, because we went through them, we tend to think that everybody went through them. And when you actually take a step to the balcony, so I'll take the example of the, you know, the Israeli military. Because in Israel, most people do it, and you're around a lot of people that did it, you think that that's a natural thing. But when you actually think about it, and you take a step to the balcony, and you understand that being 18 years old, and being in a place of really fighting in the unknown, and having 30 people under you, and leading a team when you're 18, in incredibly stressful situations, is not something that everybody has. And articulating that and putting that out is super important. And you can almost take every single point of life and doing the same thing. And I think often enough, we, we compare ourselves to our peers, which I actually think is not the right strategy to take, because we always need to see what our advantages is compared to other and I the earlier we understand it and, and selling ourselves, the better path we can take. I like to talk about it as building the portfolio of life. And we are building our portfolio of life throughout experiences and every experience is built on another. So the earlier we get that advantage is better for us. Because in the end, it's hard to say, but we're also competing against others. If it's an application, if it's you know getting funding if it's a lot of different things. So we always need to think what will give us that delta advantage versus others. And similar to that it's super important point is like, and I, I want to encourage everybody to think about it, what is our unique selling point? And I think our unique selling point is a lot of times things that are not on the face of the surface.
1: Yeah. Totally agree. So what I found really refreshing about your story and was, first of all, was such an interest, so fun to get this uh, opportunity to dive deeper because we kind of know each other. I asked for your advice about higher education a few years ago. We've been like seeing each other around. I love the things that you've been doing, but I I never really got to know you at this deep a level and looking at you from the side, you know, you're the first man on the show, by the way. So... Congrats, I guess. Wow. What an honor. Almost a year. Yeah. (laughs) It's a big honor. (laughs) So looking at you from a side, you know, you're a white man. You are a Ivy League graduate, right? Been a CEO of a super successful company, been in, in lists like 40 under 40. But reading the book and talking to you, it was so refreshing to learn about your internal experience. And I loved how scrappy you were, and I'm guessing you still are, in getting to those places because it didn't seem as something that you could have taken for granted in in many of these intersections in life, right?
0: Totally. And I think, you know, the fact that I grew up in the, periphery of israel seven thousand person town went through that that journey and knowing you know what you know and what you don't know i think is super important so I, i i know a lot of things that like you said it i'm scrappy and i think when i understand that then it's when i find ways of getting around it and building on that right so i think every single thing we can build on so if I grew up in a 7,000-person town in the periphery. How do I take that into my advantage? How do I, you know, I've never paid a single dime or a law for any of my studies. And, you know, my undergrad, I got a full scholarship to Hebrew U because I was a combat soldier from the periphery of Israel. And I was able to find that. I think also opportunities don't just fall on you. Uh, You need to find them. So that's also something that I I, am a true believer in. I think they're there. But you need to find them and you need to find the advantage always over others. So that's one. But I also think I am a true believer in outsourcing. Let's take this book that I just wrote. I never thought that I would write a book. I don't know how to write. I have ADHD and this graphic. Yet I am not ashamed. I wrote it in a book because I think it's super important to be able to yoga. I wrote, I wrote that I took a ghostwriter to write it. And that ghostwriter was cheaper than therapy. In a way, but also she put me into schedule. I knew we made it happen. I wrote a book in less than a year. So understanding what are your in a way superpowers or your powers versus what you're not good at. I claim that what you're not good at, you don't necessarily need to learn how to be good at, but rather you can outsource. And there's a reason why there is all these things, whether it's task rabbit to uh, a ghost writer. And they know the job better than I do. And if I probably look at the at the math or at economics, it'll also probably save me money to do those things. I think the scrappiness, once you understand that you're, you're scrappy in many ways, you actually can take that into advantage.
1: So I'm really kind of making this out here with like chronology and everything, but I'm really interested in hearing exactly what he said. How did you apply it or how do you apply it as a manager? Because I feel as a manager... Kind of helping people understand that they don't need to do what they're not strong at is a big eye opener for them. And sometimes it's very hard for them to let go of no, but I need to get better. No, let someone else do it. <laughs> you
0: know? One thousand percent. And I and I think in general, you know, understanding that is key. Once you you know, I I love the Reed Hastings book founder of Netflix who who in his book basically writes I'm a good manager when I outsourced everything and it works well when I have more time to myself and if you look at if you if you actually think about it there's 24 hours in a day that's a given we can't really change that once you also I think it's very important to understand for the betterment by the way of the people that you manage for the betterment of the business that you're not the know-how person for everything. Your goal as a manager and your goal as a leader is to ask the right questions. The goal for you as a manager is to be able to go from the macro into the micro when you need to, but then take automatically a step back to the macro under the understanding that you need to look at it from a top in order to to really drive the business, organization, whatever it is, forward. And I often see managers going too much into the weeds all the time. And I don't want it to seem as if you don't need to go into the weeds because you do need to go into the weeds. And a good manager, a good leader does that. But a good leader also navigates between being into the weeds, setting the vision, moving forward. And the only way to do that is hiring the right people and and giving them the autonomy to actually drive forward their lane. And if you don't do that, then I think you're doomed to fail.
1: Yeah. So I think it's a lot of times it's not really being either very high level or being into the weeds. It's just like not getting stuck in one of those. It's being very flexible and being able to, really kind of go in and out, in and out. And I'm wondering, because a lot of your book and what we've spoken about until now is about you managing your career and what you learned about yourself. But I always say, you know, it's funny, because as a startup manager, you get like more kind of glory and all of that. But actually, now that I'm managing my agency and we're like 10 people across the globe and everyone has a different time zone, I find myself enjoying the actual work of managing much more and being much more in it and being able to also, you know, not like pressuring myself into being too much in the weeds, but exactly like you said, like going kind of doing those context switches. And I'm wondering what from your journey do you feel like really helped you in your different capacities as a manager? Because you also managed very different types of teams.
0: So I believe that managing, leading managing is managing. So I'm a true believer that, you know, if you're a good manager, you're a good manager and you could do it in one sector and you can do it in a different sector. And, What I've learned again from managing and and all that is that really, again, you've got to. The first thing is to understand really that some things you are not the uh, highest authority, right? That you, you, when I, when I founded Bird in Israel, right, it was, it was clear to me that operations I have a lot of experience in from different. You know, operations, whether it was journeys and on, on, on reality or, or others, but I don't have the right operations for scooters or for others. But that understanding let me play the right role in building and in, in building a company, bringing the right person to manage that. And I think, again, that, that to me is the key. And your goal as a manager is to make sure that. The people on your team are maximizing their performance, which in return maximizes the performance of the organization, slash company, slash venture, slash anything it is. And their success is your success. And if you're able to, if you're able to do that, empowering them, understanding where they're at at each point, I think that's something crucial. Like for me, like when I come into something, I know that my, goal is is that when I leave, someone from my team will take over that I brought on. So at Superman when I brought on, on Shield, she then managed it. At Bird when I brought on Ran, he then continued to to manage and lead it. And I think the only way to actually create that is empowering and the team that you're that you're with.
1: I love that. Okay, so let's go a little bit deeper into each of those stations in your career that you mentioned. So Schusterman, you joined uh, right out of Harvard. And basically, when I met you, I think in hindsight, it wasn't a lot um, later. It was like around 2016, probably. And by that point, reality was already, at least from, you know, how it looked from the outside was like super established. I, you know, I, at that point was at a few American communities of like leaders. And I know that they've like already, I don't know if it was 2016 or 17 or 18, but they already saw this as like a super amazing leadership journey and like really like the branding and everything that you talk about in the book. And that will... I would love for you to go a little bit into in a second was working because it was like really not just about, okay, let's go on a delegation to Israel. It was about what they can actually get out of it. So can you give us a glimpse into it seems like, I think like I knew that you managed it, but I didn't know that you were pretty much the founder or the co-founder of this idea in the first place and how almost uh, revolutionary it was at the time. So I'm really curious to hear more.
0: Awesome. So I'll, tell, I'll, I'll clarify and take back a couple of steps. step for about 2016, that was already, I was a chief to for four years, so that was towards the end. I joined uh, 2012 and left towards the end of 17. So it was a, uh, it was a journey by then. And, and, also I think the way I got into Schusterman is the fact that was when I was at Harvard, I basically wrote my uh, PAE, which is a thesis for Schusterman around social innovation in Israel. And I think a lot of ways to get into something, you need to find the right, the right way. And the right way is not always conventional. Especially in the world today, so always try to to find that the way that my friend Alex describes it, like find a third door, and, and find a way that will uh, let you in. So I oh,
1: re- I love his book.
0: Such a great book! It is. It is a great book, and he's a great, great human. Really, finding that, that third door in a way is super important, and that's how I got into to Schusterman and our you know our goal there from the beginning and to fill in the in who brought me on and. And all that. The goal was basically to to find the um, the young Jews around the world that are not connected to to Israel and the Jewish world, and, and finding ways to connect them in a meaningful way, which what to evolved into reality. Which again, reality we we redesigned it. So it was it was already a program that was we're working for education and for education and journeys that um, Adam Simon and the team um, created. And we we said like okay, this is an opportunity to to take that and and make it not around education. Israel is a leadership journey, the best place to do a leadership journey by far than any other place in the world. And it can be adapted to every single sector. I'm also a true believer that every experience in general in life needs to be tailor-made. So you can act based on something that is generic, but you have to make the right adaptions. So we made adaptions for every for every journey and by building that I feel that it brought amazing people to uh, Israel but like you said it wasn't it wasn't a regular trip or it wasn't a regular delegation here we specifically point it as a leadership journey and a value-based leadership journey where you go through that journey that happens to be in Israel and Israel is really the best place to take you on that leadership journey. And you go with your peers that are in your sector. And, and that also brings out a lot into it. So I think it's a lot about how do you really, really create an experience? How do you really not forget any detail and when you create a journey? It's about really similar to, by the way, to every company or every organization. You've got to pay attention to every detail across the road. Because one can break it. And again, it's, it's, it's not an easy start. And it's one built on another, built in another. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot of things that you need to give up in the beginning. And it's a lot of fake until you make it. In the end, like, there's no bigger satisfaction when it's actually built. And you see the change, whether it's in, in people, user behavior, and through reality, it was like a lot of, participants described it as a life changing journey and when you when you see that and again going back to, to what we talked about in started start of the episode like when you actually someone comes to you and tells you this was a life changing journey and you get goosebumps, right? That's when you understand that you need to do that win 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 and it has to make something better for people and for the world.
1: Yeah and it's amazing to see, I can tell you from from the outside, it's amazing to see how people really say what kind of an impact this had on their lives in general, on their leadership style, on the connections they've made. And I think it's it's such a brilliant move to then tie it into, you know, experiencing the country and getting to know people that you only get to experience through the news and through like maybe through know, the uh, commentary. It's really amazing to see like what you were able to achieve there. So he went from This, you know, very specific kind of organization, still you brought a lot of innovation into it, but then you go into the startup world and not only a startup, but a startup that is hardware but like it's transportation it's like stuff that you ride on can you have found like a more complicated uh thing to kind of um bring to a new country and sell to people like it it sounds like a lot of different components
0: yeah Um, and i I think that's the beauty of it and by the way i think everything is is complicated and easy simultaneously you know and I, i think for some people things are more complicated because they're new. I do think that Bird and also a lot of what intrigued me about, you know, we're the company that founded the shared scooter space, and Israel was the first place outside of North America to, uh was our first global market. I think what what excited me a lot is if you look at, like, Bird is basically, like you said, it's, I don't know if complicated is the right term, but it's super diverse. So basically it works on, like, every single aspect and it has the heart as opposed to uber which is an app and a marketplace like we actually have physical hardware combined with everything and us deep operations and combined with public policy communications everything around around that and also each person it's relevant to each person in in the country i remember when we were who we were selected as uh, one of the hundred things by Cal- Calis that changed Israel in 2018. Um, and the rationale for that, for the choice of it, was basically Bird was the first company that everybody has an opinion about. And everybody has, whether you are in a car, whether you are someone in the municipality, whether you are a pedestrian, whether you actually ride those scooters, Everybody in, interacts with it and it enforced an entire revolution of, of how to look um, and create it by policymakers, by everybody. So I think that's what made it the most complicated, but also that's what made it the most interesting. And I wanted to, at that point, to gain also experience as founding something, running it in the business world. It, it was the company that was when I, when I, right after I joined, became the uh, fastest unicorn in the history of the world. But also that, the way I look at it, has a lot of great effects on the world. It reduces car, people from taking cars, reduces uh, emissions into our uh, planet. Also has a lot of advantages there. So to me, it was the perfect fit there. And also was for me to, to gain another part in my portfolio of life, which is being the, the, the GM founding something, running it, making an impact on this world. all that. Was something that I got through that, and when you do something also with passion, it shows results. It was the it, it, number one, you know, global market of, of bird it was a phenomena, and I I think also it's super interesting again to, to combine everything that we've spoken about. But like the way I, I, I decided to go for bird was I was sitting on a on the boulevard on Ben Guion Boulevard in the beginning of 2018, and after I left Houston. And By the way, I really believe that. You need to have some time out of something in order to understand where you wanna, where you wanna be. But I, I was sitting with Sam Rosen, and he was an incredible entrepreneur from Reality, from L.A. We were sitting on the Venloen Boulevard in Dizengoff, and sipping a, a cup of coffee and, and looking at the at the bike lane and and private scooters going by. And then he said, "Do you know this company called Bird, which was founded three months earlier in L.A.?" And I said, no, but I think it can be perfect here in Israel. And then he connected me, and you know, it was a scrappy startup then, and it was uh, it was already there yeah. a week after. It's an incredible story. Yeah. By, by the way, I also I also say it all the time. I would never hire myself. I would <laughs> Bird would have never hired me later on in the game because it was just different times. I didn't have the operation experience. Every GM had to have an MBA from Ivy League University. I had a master's in public policy, and I, a lot of different, when I got hired, it was like one interview, and today we have, you know, eight interviews, plus a case study, plus this, plus that. So, you know, it was also, it was the right point and the right time, and I, I took that as a really big opportunity. Great story from that perspective as well.
1: That's amazing. Yeah, I remember in 2018 going to an accelerator in California for a few months and seeing like all the scooters there and like being kind of amazed and then coming back home to Israel and seeing like all the scooters in Tel Aviv. And that was probably the time when you started <laughs> operating because it was like, Oh, those were not here like a second ago, <laughs> like three months ago. Um, so it was amazing. So I'm wondering like, what do you feel like that? Just, just on
0: that point, I'll also add that like, going back it's like basically i knew that in, in israel we already saw the phenomena of private scooters right in the u.s word launched but before that there was there were no scooters in the u.s so i understood that that israel can be a phenomenal market for it if you look at the attributes that it had right it was young people amazing weather i will never forget but like three months after we launched a, a reporter from the wall street journal came to israel to do something like, an article about a artificial meat and he came and then he saw a bird and a phenomenon. He told his editor, look, we need to do an article about this. And then uh, in the beginning of the, um, of the article, he, uh, Jason Singer started by saying it's December in Tel Aviv and life is a beach. Right. And those are the things that, you know, that, that we take for granted, right? If you only live in Israel, you take the weather for granted. I, I took it for granted in my entire life until I really left to Montreal or Boston and lived through those winters. So in the end, I had the right overview to understand why Tel Aviv will be the right market for a bird, even though people told me I got so many no's when I was talking to people, like saying on one front, like if you start it, everybody will, like the the entire fleet will be gone after a week because of vandalism or that Israelis won't be inclined to pay for a service or why do even people need it they have their private scooters and so always people will tell you why no also a lot of people told me why yes but a lot of people will tell you why no and i think you need to sometimes believe what you know and i knew a lot of things that others didn't you know think about from that perspective given my past experience
1: yeah i love that and i love that you were also able as you said like Something between timing and good fit and all the other kind of serendipitous things that go into it, but to get to also gain the trust, not only in you personally, but also in like, why is this the right market to start like so early? after the company's founding, all of that. It's really an incredible story. So Yannif, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask you, because this is something you said pretty much in the beginning of our show, and I really think it's so important because you and I are both very scrappy i think reading your book like i i have like <laughs> what still lots of to learn from you in that front like your story is full of hustling but then like one thing that i find and i think like the entire world in the last 2 or almost 3 years now kind of came to, to learn more about is also the importance of, yes, being in your comfort zone a little bit, resting, filling your cup, like you said, like taking a break in between things. So I'm wondering what, like, what do you do between hustles? How do you fill your cup? How do you make sure that you have where to draw from? And is there anything that you're doing now when you're like in, in this, like different, trying to to look into this?
0: Totally. So I, I think in general, first of all, we always learn and gain new perspectives. I, I think it's it's a constant, constant game, whether we're in something or we're out of something. I do think that when we are in something, we think that that's our only reality, right? And I think, especially in today's world, social media, everything brings you into one mode, right? When I was in reality, I thought that was the entire world. Reality, no pun intended, but like Schusterman, when I was a bird, micro-mobility, was the world, so I, I think it's first of all important to recognize that and understand that, and take that step out in order to figure out the rest of the the worlds that are that are out there, and also understand that I think putting like a time frame to each thing is super is super important because it alleviates stress. So if you move out of a, a role into something new. Define that time, right? Define, okay, six months that I can afford do whatever. And in that six months, if you want, you can be on the beach or do whatever, rejuvenate in the way that you want to do. But like that's the way you alleviate the stress of like day-to-day, which is super big stress. And then you I am a true believer in like talking to people. I think talking to people over a cup of coffee, it's like a, it's like a web. It creates a real web for you of of learning. And I think also there's so much information out there now to learn. And I I think going back to a little bit of your question in terms of comfort zone, I think it is important to be in a comfort zone for a short while, but you also need to to understand when is the time to get out of the comfort zone. So to me, the end of the comfort zone is where, again, I don't feel the passion to talk about it in a Friday night dinner table. And there can be a portion before when I'm in the comfort zone and I do and it's also important to take that comfort zone to explore and to start tiptoeing into, into others. But I also think that it's super important to always ask yourself, should I be where I'm at? And I think you shouldn't ask that daily because, again, that will destroy you. I think you should do that periodically, every year, ask those questions and be, be frank with yourself. Am I in the comfort zone right now? Am I not, you know? I believe sometimes like a a five-year cycle, depending on what I do, but like first year is scrambling around. The the next two years are you actually get work done. And the fourth year you're in the comfort zone and fifth year is time to figure out something new. Again, that's a very pop scheme. If you get new roles or you get new things that that you're excited about, then that can change. But like, always ask yourself those hard questions because if you won't ask yourself those hard questions, You'll just continue under the same path, and it's very hard to then make that shift and change.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Asking yourself questions, asking people around you questions—such an important skill, and so easy to kind of ignore just in the as life goes by. So, thank you, Aimee, for taking the time and talking to me, and and you know, creating another another thread in that uh, web. Hopefully, for our listeners too. So our Israeli or Hebrew speaking listeners can pick up Pia book, which is bestseller now. And hopefully soon we'll see it in English too.
0: Yes. Amen. Working on that.
1: Awesome. So stay tuned, everybody. And thank you so much. Enjoy the after the holidays season. (laughs) Talk soon.
0: Thank you so much. And I'm super honored that I was the first male on the show.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for listening to Looks Like Work. You can find resources, links, and of course the episode's show notes at roomsandwords.com. That's rooms, like a room, and words, and like an end.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, I really, really hope that you like my newsletter too. My newsletter is something that I send out every week, and I share thoughts, links, Books and just other things that I find thought-provoking, interesting, somehow contributing to these conversations that we're having here, or sometimes just joyously distracting. Again, the newsletter is sent out every week, and you can find the link to sign up on my website at roomsandwords.com. And I really hope to see you there and of course to see you here next week. Have a good one!